In this episode, New York's Chen Julie Wang, lawyer and author, shares her story about being an undocumented child and the journey from there to lawyer and author. These are Julie's defining moments. Hi, Julie, and welcome to Mama Talk Talk's A Different Take. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have been waiting to talk to you for, I want to say months, but it's not been terribly long. <laughs> and before we get into your introduction, the reason why I'm so excited about you is because, first of all, I love these stories where I'm sitting at my computer on LinkedIn, something comes through from someone I don't know, it's a great story, I reach out, and it's, it's you, and now here we are. So before I tell everybody what that story is, welcome to Mama Talk Talk, and please go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Chan Julie Wong. Um, professionally, I am a commercial litigator and an author, but I would probably define myself first and foremost as a reader because I love reading all kinds of stories and being exposed to all kinds of experiences and lives that I, I myself have not personally been privy to. But I should also define myself as a obsessive rescue dog mom. I have two little dogs, Salty and Peppers, who I saved uh, within hours of, of uh, they were going to be put down. And I saved mm. them years ago and they are just uh, the light of my life. I'm, I'm obsessed with them. Also obsessed with my husband, but a little less so. So <laughs> <laughs> my, my son loves animals, especially dogs and cats. But then the other day he said to me, mommy, I'm kind of conflicted. I don't know which one is my favorite between dogs and cats. And I said, why? He said, because I, you know, I don't really like kittens, but I love cats. And I don't really like dogs, but I love puppies. <laughs> and I was like, okay, it doesn't really matter because we're not getting either. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of work. You should wait until he's uh, grown up enough to take care of it full time, which may be a while. <laughs> yes, and that, that was it because I said, I know you're not going to take care of it, so we're not getting another, another responsibility here. But Julie, so I, I want to ask again how to pronounce your name because I take great pride in the fact that I now live in Singapore. And so I should, and I've, and I've been learning how to pronounce Chinese names. So it's Chen. Chen, yes, you got it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So, first of all, your book is going to be coming out in the fall of 2021. Yeah. I am incredibly excited about it, partly because every time I hear that there's a lawyer at a law firm, as an associate in New York, who has time to do anything other than do hours, I think that, first of all, they're super, a superhero. So that's the first thing. But the fact that this book is about your life experience as an immigrant and one who, for whom the times in America now will really, really resonate, I'm very, very keen to talk about the book. So tell us about the book. You can start wherever you want, the idea behind it, what it's about, and all of that. Sure. So the book is called Beautiful Country, um, a memoir of an undocumented childhood. So I, I grew up undocumented in New York City. My parents and I moved here at age seven, when I was age seven, not my parents. Um, and uh, it, was, it was incredibly difficult. My parents were actually professors in China. We, were, we came from Hebei province, northern China, 
Um, and all of a sudden, um, by that swift change, they had to work in laundromats and sweatshops and sushi processing plants. And what really got me through those years was really reading. Um, I really mm -hmm. threw myself in books. That was how I learned English. Um, and I had always dreamed of sharing the story in a way that's accessible to people you know, across the world. Um, I'd always wanted to read a story about someone like me in books, but it was really hard to find, um, yeah. especially back then. I think maybe it's gotten a little better now somewhat. Um, you know, an, a, a girl of color or an Asian, a Chinese girl, an immigrant, an undocumented immigrant, to, to hear about someone else's experience, because when you don't have that reflection back at you from media or from books, you feel so incredibly lonely and like there's no one else out there who understands. And as I've grown up, I've realized that that's just not the case. There are people yeah. out there who have to be open enough to, to find them and seek them out. But um, yeah, so I've always wanted to write this story. Uh, really took my first real stab at it in college um, and really was not mature enough um, or recovered enough from, from a lot of the trauma to write it well. I wrote it as fiction because I was so at that time, I, I, I was here on a visa um, for college. But I wrote it as fiction because the fear of being found out and, and deported never really leaves. I'm a, yes. I'm a citizen now. And, and when my New York Times op-ed came out, there was still a moment where I was like, oh, my boss is going to find out. Like, my colleagues are going to find out what's going to happen to me. I've never told anyone about this. And there's just that fear, like, what if they come after me? And that was very palpable when I did my first attempt uh, in college. So I wrote it as fiction and it just, it wasn't right. And I, I, I knew that it wasn't right. And I also wanted to go to law school because I had this deep sense of justice, of wanting to give voice to people who didn't have voices and all of that. So I went to law school and I clerked and all of that um, and became a citizen in 2016, right before uh, the election. Um, so I remember being in the swearing-in ceremony and President Obama's face comes on the screen and he says, hello, yes. hello, American, welcome. And I remember thinking, I've been in this country, I've thought of myself as American for 20 some years, but no one has ever recognized me as that. And I just started crying. Mm -hmm. um, and it was from that day on, and especially after the election, I just realized I was in such a privileged position now. Like I may be scared of being deported, that fear may always be in me, but I have a choice now to share my story or not share it, right? It is now a choice rather than people who are still in that position who, who can't come forward necessarily and, and share that. So I started working on it. Um, and I really, I wrote most of the story on my iPhone notes pad, notes app on the subway to and from work because that was the only time I had. And I figured I was in the subway, there was no cell reception, there was no email reception, so I may as well be writing, writing my book. And this actually, I think it was the only way I could have finished it because I yeah. am an incredibly like perfectionistic uh, and stern self-editor. If a sentence is not perfect, I will delete it and rewrite it 20 times. But on the cell phone, it just wasn't so easy to hit that delete button. And I just told myself, as long as you're on the platform, as long as you're on the train, you will be writing. You will be putting words down. And every time I did that, I just kept telling myself, this is a placeholder. This is written on a cell phone. It's not important. I'll rewrite everything. I just want something down now. 
Um, and without that approach, I just don't think I ever would have yeah. gotten it all done. So I'm actually very grateful for being forced to do that. Yeah, no, the, the, I, I can completely relate to the idea of when you start writing, because I'm a perfectionist, I have to just keep going. Because the moment I stop and look at the line before, and let, everything comes off, right? So it, it unravels and I have to start over again. But Julia, I want to unpack a number of things that you said there. Sure. Um, the idea that that fear of being undocumented never leaves you. I think it's something that a lot of people who are not immigrants will find hard to understand, yeah. especially if you know you are undocumented. And before people throw their hands up and say, well, you're undocumented, you were seven when you moved. So that's one thing that I just wanna kind of sound back because I hear you, this whole idea that they're coming from you. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. It's a reality for millions upon millions of immigrants, not just in the US, but in many different parts of the world, right? So that's something that just, it, it stays there. The other thing that I found just interesting and I wanna kind of call out because I think it's important, is also this idea that your parents were professors in China and then the US, they're working in a laundromat. As an African immigrant, there are countless stories that I've heard. And you know, my family was no exception where moving, people went from really amazing jobs in their home countries to doing whatever job they needed to do to survive in the US. Yeah. And so there is a difficulty, I'm using a, soft word, a softer word than trauma, that comes with that. Mm -hmm. There is a sense of humility that is forced upon you when, you when you've made that choice, right? But there's also a sense of loss that comes with it. Yeah. And these people who make these choices have to live with that on top of everything else that comes with being an immigrant. So first of all, thank you for just pulling those out because I think anyone who's an immigrant or has dealt with immigrants has a, an understanding of what that, that kind of loss is. Yeah. Um, one of the first books I read from a Chinese writer, which was nonfiction, and I absolutely loved it, it was read Azalea by An Chi Min. I don't know if you've read that. I've not yet read, no, but I've heard amazing things about it. It yeah. is. It, it, it was, oh my, oh my word. She, she, grew up, she grew up during the Mao era, and then she moved to the U.S. As, uh, old, at an older age than you did. Okay. But her reflection on what life was like there and in the U.S. was my first introduction to um, Chinese writing in terms of nonfiction work. So... When I saw your stuff come through, it made me think of Auntie Min, and she's, it's one of my favorite books. It sits on my, on my, on my desk right now. I'll be sure to what read it. Had... It's been on my list for, for way too long, so, yeah. And strangely enough, I read it in, in poli-sci in college. It wasn't even an English class. My political science professor at the time, Dan Kelleher, um, he used to spend a lot of time in China, and so this was one of the recommended books he had for our political science class. And I was like, poli-sci and lit. I love it. <laughs> So, so you, you, are, you are a commercial litigator now in New York. So, of course, you have, you have legal training. In the last few years under President Trump, there's been a lot that has happened with DACA. 
what is your take on it, your perspective, your feelings, your reflections on how this whole conversation around DACA has gone? I have a lot of them. So picking where to start is, is difficult. But as I, as I wrote in, in the New York Times piece, I, what I first and foremost um, comes to me is the incredible courage of the recipients to come forward. Um, actually, since my piece came out, a few reached out to me and they said, you know, when I was in the process of applying, I heard that they were coming after people and their families who had been rejected. And it was a huge choice between myself and my future and my parents who don't stand to gain from this really at all. Um, and that is something in the national conversation is just missing. They don't talk about that. That yeah. yes, President Obama and his administration did a good thing. It was something, the DREAM Act was something that I heard about when I was 10 years old and was hoping for. So, and now I'm, I'm 33 now, so you can, you can count the number of years it took. Um, and so, you know, these, these kids waited forever, their entire childhood to be recognized and to have some sense of hope and some pathway towards, uh, you know, being accepted in the only home they have. Mm -hmm. um, but it still comes with a lot of risk because even if your application does get accepted and you do get the permit, all your information is now in their system. And if yeah. there is a change of tides politically of, of presidents, as we saw, you know, Donald Trump took office and immediately was like, nope, no more, done with this. Um, your, 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 your life hangs in the balance. And, and I thought about this often, even when I was 11, like, I don't really, I can't really read Chinese anymore. I can't get by in China. If they send me home, what am I going to do? Um, I love, I love, you know, I've always loved reading and writing and that's what I want to build my career on. And I wanted to be a lawyer. And I, if I get sent back to China, all of that is gone. And you just have to be prepared for that to happen, uh, you know, at, at any moment, really. And, and the, the psychological toll it takes on you, I mean, I, I just, it's hard to pass on to someone, as you say, who has not lived it. But I was told, you know, some, some kids grow up not knowing about their status. I, I knew about it. And I was told if I saw a cop just to turn the other way. And so I once saw a sanitation man who was in uniform, but I didn't know who he was. So I ran away from him because I had no idea. Um, and I was scared to go to school because I didn't know if the teachers found out what they report me, like what the rules were in this. First of all, you have to reckon with the new country you're in and all the rules that are there and then the new language. And then there's this added layer of, oh, I don't belong here and I must remember that at all times. And so that really seeps in um, into you. And I, I'm extremely privileged now. I'm a citizen. I don't need to worry about DACA being being brought into place, but so much of the conversation, and I, I think during when it was passed, some of it was elucidated, you know, that these, these now adults, but then children have a lot to contribute to our country, which is the only home they have. But the, the, the psychological toll and the heartbreak that goes behind each and every one of these stories, which are all incredibly different, right, depending on yeah. what families they're from and where, where they're from and their culture and and, and how, how they made their way through the United States, um, that gets missed because, because the mainstream pr presents, you know, a certain kind of story. You could have written about anything. Why did you pick this? And I, because this is a huge chunk of who you are. 
And so it's, it, I imagine it was not an easy thing to write about, but wh why did you choose to write this particular story and why did you choose to have it come out now? Well, I would have liked for it to come out earlier if I had written it earlier, but uh, that's beside the point. <laughs> um, I, as I said, I, um, when I became a citizen, it really, for me, became a call to action. And then uh, Donald Trump was elected and that was another call to action. And it, it, it seems to me that our political discourse is now so divided in this country. And it's, it's the same from, from the, the left as well, right? We don't see the other side as, as people and humans. Humans yeah. are really hard to hate up close. I, I don't care what your political leanings are. You get to know someone's hurts and desires and dreams, and they are very difficult to hate. And that's what I really wanted. That's what literature does, right? And that's what I wanted to do with this book is get to know, this is the only child I have access to. So it was the one that I, I had to share, but get to know this child. She's brought into a completely foreign land. Before she left China, she was privileged in ways she did not even realize. She just took taken for granted. And she never knew that there were people with different skin color and never knew that there, it was possible to have blue eyes. And then she's brought to this world where there are people with green eyes and blue eyes and blue green eyes and speaking all sorts of languages. And, and, and then layered upon that, reckoning with the fact that you have, you, know, you have to remember that you don't belong here and walk away from anyone who looks like they may be part of the government. Um, and and what that, how that affects not just the child, but the family unit, um, the parents, as you say, the, the adults are the ones who made this decision. And even if they're not undocumented, they come here and they immigrate and it's a huge sacrifice and they have to reckon with that. And they have to, they have much clearer memories of what it was like before in their home country and how much easier it may have been and how much worse it may have been. The child though has to just accept what comes because that's what children do. They don't really, you know, question things in the same way. So it was funny because, um, you know, when I was in China, I assumed everyone was like me like pretty well off, pretty comfortable, fit in everywhere. And then I came to the US and I was like, okay, so everyone's poor here, got it. Um, and, and I do think that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just figured everyone had the same situation. Um, and I think that if you've always been in your place of birth and you've always been in kind of the same society, you, you tend to uh, recline into that, right? If I had stayed <laughs> in China, I, I think I would have just been an incredibly privileged and completely unappreciative of all of it. Um, and I don't think that's anybody's fault. I think that's just human nature. And so yeah. the more that we can share stories and literature showing facets, the more that we can help sh show each other our common humanity. I don't think any of us are all that different. And, and I wanted it to be about the undocumented childhood because everyone, everyone has trauma from their childhood. And I think when you look close enough, it's really not that different, regardless of whether you're white and American or you're undocumented and black or Latino or, or, or Chinese or Asian. Um, and, and yeah, I wanted to pull out that common thread of humanity. Yeah. Julie, when you, when you think about it, what are some of the, what are some of your earliest, earliest memories about America when you when you first moved, what were some of the things that? And let me let me let me step back. When I moved to the U.S., I was sixteen, and some of the things that hit me right away as I came out of Dulles International Airport, I was like, how many lanes 
are there on this highway, right? That was the first thing. Everything just seemed so big, everything. So just massive. And then I used to go to, there was a, there was a, a checkers, not far from my mother's apartment in, in Maryland. And I'd go there and you could supersize things, right? There and at the, I think it was the McDonald's and Burger King next to it. So this whole notion of options, right? So you could go there, you could have a small, medium, and large. And I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. And I go into the supermarket and just stand there and stare at the aisle, right? Toothpaste, Colgate, <laughs> Sensodyne, this and that and that and that. And I'm like, how many brands of toothpaste, right? And I would look at milk, 1%, 2%, whole milk, vitamin D, this, that, and then you get into the different brands. So it was, it was for me just this completely different world from the one I came from, right? Where um, if there were choices, I, I don't really know what those choices were. Um, and so for me, my earliest memories of America were really choice, size, everything was so big. What, what were yours? I know you were seven, but what do you remember yeah. in those earliest days? I think that, I think you're right. The sensory details are the first that comes to mind. So I remember first and foremost, the smells. So dairy is not huge in China, but dairy is everywhere here. And I think that for a time it was, I couldn't get away from the smell of dairy. I just walk on the street and it just smelled like milk and cheese, but I didn't know what it was. Um, and even, even in China, when it's, when there's milk, it's like more diluted and it's not, you know, it's probably like 1%, like you say, not the whole, whole milk. But I just remember smelling that from the minute I got on the plank, they were serving American food. I was just yeah. That smell. Um, and then my dad had saved, so my dad was here two years before my mom and I arrived and he had saved for months to take, be able to take us back to Brooklyn, um, or through to, to Brooklyn from the airport. Um, in a in a cab and i remember being in the cab first of all the cab being yellow and i was like that's weird i didn't really never seen a yellow car before um and then seeing all of the lights of new york city just out the window and it's just i never seen i mean beijing has fairly fair number of lights but just all the lights all in one place um it was crazy and then i remember going to fifth avenue for the first time on Christmas and all of the lights and beauty there. And I just remembered also everything being big, but also feeling like, oh, this is a land that has so many new things. It really does feel, it sounds so cliche, but it does feel like a land of opportunity when, when everything's so lit up like that and so big and vast. And yeah. yeah, no, I, I really, uh, some of the things you just talked about, like the lights, as soon as you said that, I was thinking about, um, all of the lights with, I think it's Kanye West and Rihanna. Yeah. But it, it's really, that the vibe that you get, right? It's really like all the lights and it has such a big personality. And so those are the things I thought of as a, as a child. Over the years, you, as you grew up, what were some of the things that you started to notice where, because you, you said when you first came, you thought everybody was poor. Yeah. But when did you start to notice you were different? Um, well, I kind of got the sense that I was different. My dad was like, you can't tell anyone, you know, about, he actually said, if anyone asks you for documents, tell them you, your dad has it. Um, and I remember being 
like, that's weird. And then he was saying, you can't tell anyone that we're here illegally. And I was like, that's weird. But I never got to the point of at seven years old being like, oh, so we're the only ones and everyone else. I just figured maybe a lot of people around me and possibly it was true, uh, were here illegally and we just didn't talk about it. It was just something we never talked about. But uh, class was, was the biggest uh, uh, differentiator. And I noticed that pretty early. I think a few months into school, I noticed that one girl in my class who was really pretty and always dressed really nicely, um, always got an ice cream bar from the school vending machine. And I was very hungry. I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot to eat. None of us did. We couldn't afford that much. Um, our food budget was about $20 a week back then. Um, so I remember I developed this like uh, masochistic thing where I followed her and watched her eat it. <laughs> like I knew that she would go to the vending machine and I just like watched her eat it because I didn't even know it was a strawberry shortcake popsicle. I'd never seen wow. that before in China with the little dots on them. And I just thought it was the prettiest. It was pink and white. It was the prettiest thing in the world. And there was this pretty girl eating it. And I would just watch her and like kind of drool. And that was really when it clicked into place that, uh, you know, not everyone was in the same boat. And I started, and you, and then you learn shame, right? You learn to hide, you learn to hide who you are. And then, um, then it's also food related, uh, not surprising, but um, I, so we relied on the free meals and my mom was under the impression, I gave her the impression that um, I would get a free breakfast every day at school. My school was in Chinatown. They, they let me attend because I didn't speak any English and couldn't go to school anywhere, but we lived really far out in Brooklyn. So by the time I got to school, I often didn't get lunch. It was just too late. So by the time that lunch, uh, lunchtime, I didn't get breakfast. So by the time lunchtime came around, um, I would be starving. Like everything in the classroom reminded me of food, like so hungry. And all the kids who needed free lunches had to wait um, against the cafeteria walls before the free lunch started being served. But there were kids who were well off enough that they brought their own lunches. And I remember being among one of the kids waiting with my stomach hurting and rumbling, just sit, standing there as right in front of me at a table, of, at a table, a bunch of kids were just eating their homemade lunches. Lunches that I, you know, we couldn't really afford meat. So they had beef and lamb and that just made me incredibly jealous. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it was those major divides in my day that made me, gave me the sense, not so consciously, but subconsciously that something was a little, little different and a little off with me in my yeah. life. Um, yeah. And that, and then you don't really start to unravel how that builds into your identity until much later on. Much later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's what makes stories, right? Individual stories. The idea that you get to a certain point in your life and you just you know you, you have this shame and you're thinking, where did, this, where did it start? Yeah. Where did I start to carry shame? This idea of feeling different and the way you talk about watching this other girl eat her, her ice cream. It's, it's those little very nuanced things that ultimately shape people, right? And then you know, you're driven and you, you, when, you, when you get a chance to buy your own first ice cream, you do. And it's such a victory. People are like, why is she yeah. so excited about buying her ice cream bar? It's like, you don't know the story behind this ice cream bar. <laughs> um, in, your, in your time, so, so you mentioned in the beginning that you wanted to be a lawyer. 
because you had this sense of justice. Today, you're a commercial litigator. How does that tie into kind of where you, where you came from in terms of like, not to say there's no justice in commercial litigation, but how do those two things tie? Um, so I haven't spent my entire career in commercial litigation. I was actually in okay. government for a while doing appeals and I clerked um, for two different judges on two different courts. And clerking for a judge was really kind of for me the apex of I'm really getting to make a difference, right? So early in my legal career, I'm getting to be um, advising a judge on the Ninth Circuit, for instance, on immigration cases. And, and that uh, was really inspiring and, and motivating and captivating. Um, I first wanted to be a lawyer because I, as I mentioned, uh, learned English reading books from the library and I came upon condensed um, biographies of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall. And, oh my gosh, you uh, Yeah, that. I know. Like the, I mean, there were, I'm sure there were others. I just, those were the two that appealed to me for whatever reason. And then I remember later on watching on TV and being like, huh, all the lawyers are white men. That's weird because I only know of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall. And they're they're Marshall. not white men. <laughs> and I was so lucky that that was the first kind of introduction to law for me in this world because otherwise I that think is I special been, yeah I would have just been because like no, a lot of people that's not it yeah that's really special um but there is something about and I, I I'm torn myself on what I do daily I do I spend a, quite a bit of time on pro bono work immigration cases um police brutality cases uh, employment discrimination, I, I do, but I, I feel very guilty for not spending all of my time on it, right? There, there is something about the world of commercial litigation, though, I think that um, is good for in, in terms of training good lawyers, at least at the outset, and I kind of went in being like, well, I can take all their resources, and then I'll, I'll see what happens. But then there's the other thing of being in a world that is so dominated by privileged white men and being able to win that I find very, very addictive. And I just like being able to surprise people in court. Um, I had a big law, I, I went up against a big law partner who uh, for months called me as if I was his secretary, even though we were opposing counsel. And yeah. I just kind of played the role of the stereotype, the quiet Asian woman, and was like, just wait until you come upon me in court. And that was when I started being my usual loud mouth self. Um, and I just like subverting stereotypes. I don't know. Some, I, it's a sickness, but it's something that I've really um, enjoyed in, in the, even in this world. And I, I've enjoyed being able to pull others who are junior to me up that way, because there's just not many models. As yeah. you, you've been in the private practice. Um, there's just not much room for us, right? And not many models. And so I, I don't know if this is what I want to do forever, to be quite honest. I, I feel a call to, to a bigger mission. But while I'm here, I think that I am making a, a, still a little bit of difference. Or maybe that's just what I tell myself to feel better. But, um, we, we all tell ourselves <laughs> interesting things. I went, to, I went to law school to be a human rights lawyer, came out a almost $120,000 in debt, Ended up going to a farm, did that for four years, and I was like, yeah, this is not for me. And then I, I went to pharma. <laughs> but the, the thing that I would, I would say about, about what you said in terms of subverting stereotypes and, you know, playing the, 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 the quiet Asian, let's talk about masking. 
because in that for you, it sounded to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you had to wear a mask and then take it up at a time and a place that was convenient for what yeah. you wanted to do. Let's talk about how that has shown up at different points in your life, this whole idea of, of masking. Yeah, uh, that's a great way of framing it. And I will say that is not, that was not my usual way of reacting, nor was it a, the most common way. Usually when someone treats me that way, I start yelling at them, right? Or doing something that's like completely just tearing apart what they think I am. And that time I, I made a very deliberate decision. I was like, this is a big case. What can I do strategically, but still mm -hmm. be myself? And, and chose to take that route. And it was, it actually ended up being very empowering, but I don't know that it would always be the case in every situation. And there have certainly been times, well, I think one repeated scenario that has happened to me is that uh, unfortunately, because I am a very good writer and I love writing and I love the, the craft, um, I have been accused of plagiarism baselessly by white teachers and professors and bosses throughout my life. Um, wow. And how you respond to that, uh, right? If you respond with anger and you're like, how dare you? There's like at work, it's like, oh, you're so defensive. Like you have to be amenable to criticism, but it's like, no, I, where would I have copied this brief is my question. Um, so and so, that, so that was going to be my question. When they accuse you of plagiarism, who are they saying you plagiarize, or what are they saying you plagiarize, or is it just you couldn't possibly have written this? Uh, so twice, once was in elementary school, once was in middle school, and it was basically, you couldn't have possibly written this. Where did you get this from? One of the teachers actually circled big words and had me define the words, and she was like, well, you're an immigrant. And I was like, yeah, I know, but I love to read. I don't, I'm not, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and I don't know where you would have thought that I copied this from, right? Um, and the, the, the time with the brief, I just, I could not explain it. I was just dumbfounded. I was like, with a brief, like, there's no way you would be able to copy that, right? There's specific to the case. Um, but I remember the first time that I had to mask was, I was, uh, it was fifth grade. My teacher called me up and he said, where'd you copy this from? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I, I know you copied it. I, we don't see this kind of writing in this Chinatown school. Um, and I was like, I was just confused. I was like, I, I don't know what you mean. And he's like, I'm so disappointed in you. And I just kind of bowed my head and like in my hand, I just walked back. I didn't say anything. I never told him, like, I never said, how dare yeah, you, anything yeah. like that. And then from there on out for the rest of my time in his class, I would write things and then after the fact, add in spelling mistakes. That, that one sits with me because that's how we start to destroy the inner genius of children, right? When you start to question them and doubt them. And it's one of those things where for me, the question is always, and maybe we didn't have the internet then, just, just run, run a check if you suspect something. Yeah. Once you start to tell children that I don't, I don't believe you did this and I'm disappointed in you, there's something that stays in their spirit with that, right? And you just start to shrink. And that's my biggest worry is shrinking children, right? Because coming out of that years later, you know, it's very hard. So I'm sorry to, to hear that, but, you know, I'm not surprised. I think this whole thing of having to prove yourself 
again and again and again at different points in your life. It's just, you know, it does happen. But then that takes me to the question of, for you, America is home. How do you think of China? If America is home, what, what is China to you? China's my ancestry. Um, I really, I think I left, I left too early to really identify as Chinese. Mm. The other piece of our family story is that my dad came from a line of dissident writers. And so he grew up being persecuted um, for what his older, eldest brother wrote. Um, he was six years old. His brother was 20 or something like that. Um, and wrote something during the Cultural Revolution to criticize Mao. So I grew up uh, around the dinner table in China and in the U.S. hearing about how awful the government was and the human rights and all of the problems. And so it's really hard to divorce my view of China from that, which was largely filtered um, through my dad's very personal experiences being ostracized and persecuted. Um, so, but, but it also has such a rich history and a culture it came to come, came to read, you know, Dream of the Red Chamber and all of that late in high school and being like, oh, there are good parts of where I'm coming from. It's not just bad, but I, but I think the bad parts, especially younger, younger me really kind of embedded itself in me as well, because it was like, once again, I should be ashamed of where I come from. And then having uh, the news coverage echo that at many points about how bad China is, which is indisputable. It's, it's human rights problems are, are major, um, but it, it makes it hard for Chinese kids growing up to, to kind of embrace their heritage. You know, that, that's an interesting thing because, well, first of all, just given what you've said, you absolutely need to read Red Azalea. Um, but but th this whole idea of China's horrendous um, human rights records, I find very interesting because when I stand back now and I look around me at what's going on in the world at large today, there are a lot of countries yeah. which have human rights problems. And if you view it from the perspective of a lot of people outside the U.S., they think the U.S. has serious human rights problems, oh, sure. including what we just talked about, right, Daka? So this, this idea takes me back to what Chimamanda Adichie's talk on the danger of a single story. I've had the opportunity, and I, I think it's a privilege to travel the world over. And one of the places I, I, I went to often for work was Shanghai. And because of everything I'd heard about China before I went, I couldn't believe my eyes when I got to Shanghai, right? It's this bustling metropolis. There are all these things, and I'm looking around me and going, this is not the China of which I've read in books, right? This is not the China I've heard of. Are there things that are very true about some of those reports? Yes, but that is not the full story. Yeah. So for me, I've, I've learned over the course of my life that you, when you hear one part, always assume there's another part, which is sometimes the counterpart. You kind of have to look at it from that perspective. Go ahead. So I was just talking to a, um, also a Chinese immigrant friend from law school, and we were talking about the movie The Farewell. I don't know if you've seen it. With I you. haven't about uh, a girl who's in New York, but her grandma in Northern China is, is sick. So she goes back, she thinks, uh, he, well, the doctors think that the grandma's dying, so she has to go back. And after the movie was a huge hit and, and it was, um, you know, seen the country all over, all over America. And it was really the first portrayal of, of uh, North China. 
Um, and, and one central feature of the movie was that the doctor's diagnosis was not revealed to the grandma. So she had no idea she had cancer. She had no idea she was going to die. And this became the story like, oh, Northern Chinese people are so messed up. They don't even tell their family members when they're dying. And my friend and I were talking because we're both from that area. And we're like, well, this is the problem with only one story being told because then you only have that image. You see a million stories about white people in all kinds of situations. Like you watch Good yeah. Hunting and you don't think all white people are genius janitors in a college, right? Um, but when just a tiny swath of the story is told, that's what happens. Um, there's a lot, and, and, and that's the same for me too, right? Like I only heard one kind of story yeah. in my family. But there are, when I've gone back as an adult, which has not been many times, I've, I've seen also, you know, the positives and the upsides and, and the, the love and the, the care that um, human, the people share with each other. So um, yeah, facets to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what is it about, if I step back, I asked you about just, you know, your earliest memories. What were the most challenging things you went through? But what were also some of the most exciting things that you and your family kind of went through, especially in the early days? Yeah. Um, I went to work with my mother at a bunch of the jobs that she had. So being with her at the sweatshop was really difficult. Uh, seeing her work in the sushi factory, um, when she, uh, it was, you had to be working in <clears throat> ice water because you had to prepare the salmon and keep it fresh and all of that. And she would come out with kind of purple skin because she'd been in ice wow. water for 12 hours. Um, when you say in ice water, what do you mean? Like she was standing in ice? She had boots on, but there'd be ice in the basin where her hands were constantly and the water would drip out onto her boots and sometimes into her boots. And I was, you know, I was there and it would drip into my boots and I was cold, but I was only there when I didn't have school and she was there all the time. Wow. Mm. Um, and just seeing your mother, I think this is common to a lot of immigrants, but seeing your, your parents, when you grow up kind of in a stable home and you never immigrated, your parents for a while in your childhood are like God, right? They're, they're these yes. all-knowing beings and they can do everything. But when you're an immigrant and you, and, and you come to a country and you're, for instance, for, in my example, my mother couldn't speak the language and you have to translate for her. They start to lose that godliness. And if it happens too early, it's terrifying, right? Because you're like, well, she can't protect me. <laughs> Who's yeah. gonna protect me? Wow. Um, and that is really like bit by bit, it was kind of chipped away uh, for me, as I'm sure it was for, for many people who immigrated at young ages. Um, yeah, the, the exciting parts um, were when that time she took me um, to Fifth Avenue and I saw all the lights and I saw Richard Kiss and we went to FAO Shorts. And I had never seen such a big place, as you say, the size. And then like, so many toys. I remember walking down one aisle and just having my arms out and just touching all of the toys. Like all the toys you could ever want are in this one building. Um, and in a way it gave me a sense, cause my mom was always big on telling me like, no matter what's happening to you right now, you will get out of this. I don't know if I will, but you will work your way out of this and you can have everything you want. Everything the city or country has to offer, it will be yours. And that really, 
allowed me to engage in those places and experiences and know, okay, one day, one day this will be mine. It may yeah, not be mine yeah. right now, but one day it will be. Um, and, and, and that sense of possibility, right? Mm -hmm. Because in China, uh, in, in a lot of the, the, you know, home countries where immigrants decide to leave, there is a sense of like, you can't get out of your station in life. And I don't know how mobile people really are in the U.S. I think we like to think we're more, we, we're more conducive to the American dream than, than we actually are. Certainly it's, it's a real problem. Um, but but I definitely felt that difference. And my parents yeah. told me we came here, you know, because the world is open for us, more so in ways than it ever would have been in China. Um, and the idea that I could make it for myself was really empowering. You know, the, the thing you said about the godliness of parents being chipped away, <clears throat> that is so profound. I went to an inner city high school in Minneapolis where I had classmates who, whose parents were Hispanic and they had to translate for their parents. And some of them realized at a certain point that they could manipulate things, Yeah, right? Once you know as a child, first of all, children are always testing things, right? I'm finding yeah. this pushback on their parents. But once you figure out that you can actually lie to your parents or manipulate them, and they have no real way of verifying that, not only does the power balance shift, but what you said about as a child, can you protect me? It starts to erode something in there. You're looking at your parents a bit different. Like, well, if, if I have to tell you what's going on, how can you be the one that protects me? Yeah. And that is something that can really shift the family dynamic in a really scary way because I'm still of the fervent belief that, you know, while I have very open conversations with my 10-year-old, it's important that I set the bar and the standard and protect him up until he can do so for himself. So when that shifts, I don't think we really understand what that does to the family structure and how you continue to uphold and respect your parents, even though you're their mouthpiece, you're because it does something, right? It exposes their ignorance at a time when too young to understand why they don't know what they don't know. You're like, yeah. you don't know that mommy, you don't know that daddy. And then totally it just, like yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, an, it's an interesting, difficult thing. I, I will say, I think in my experience, it also had a, um, well, one thing first. So there's also the added dynamic of, when these families leave their home, it's often the first time the parents are completely away from their support structures. This is the first time my yes. mom was outside of the province from his, her parents and her siblings. And who does she have to talk to? Like, no one can really know what's going on because of the whole secrecy around being undocumented and, and all of that. So that you start to lean on your child more because they become your friend, they become your mentor and confidant in some ways. But I was going to say one positive thing that came out of that for me is that uh, when teachers, and you mentioned inner city schools of, with which I'm, I'm very familiar, when teachers in those schools, they're amazing teachers and they're not so good teachers. And some of the not so good teachers like to tell the, the kids they're teaching that, you know, don't dream so big, it's not possible, you're not going to do this. And sometimes they'll laugh at you when you say um, you want to do X, Y, and Z when you grow up because the teachers have faced a lot of systemic barriers themselves probably and, and are frustrated yeah. or whatever it may be. 
when they told me that, I didn't believe them because I, you know, my parents didn't know everything. What could these teachers know? Um, and I think that's a way in which kind of the eroding of the authority figure really helped. Um, and that's the same yeah. in the corporate world, right? Like what your boss says is not necessarily what you should do. He may not know everything, right? Um, yeah. You have your own judgment. So it, in ways it has really uh, armed me and prepared me a lot for life. Um, but yeah, it was- How somebody that way? <laughs> yeah. See, there are two sides to everything. There really are, and sometimes more. I haven't thought about it that way. Yeah. So I want to go back to the book because I can't wait. And I always want to hear from writers about, this is your first book, but just that experience of writing a book and somebody calling you up and saying, we love your book. We yeah. want to publish it. I want to hear that part. Just, just tell me about the journey of the book, when you got that call and where things are right now. Oh my God, it's been insane because I just, uh, immediately after I write anything, I just want to delete it all. <laughs> it's just my reaction to my own writing. Um, and actually when I finished the book, I uh, texted the, my, my judge who's been an amazing mentor and I just love her to death. She actually officiated my wedding and just an incredible person. I texted her and I said, I finished. She was like, you have to finish this. This book needs to be read. So she was the first person I talked to about it. And when I first finished it, she was the she was the first person to know. And she's like, oh my God, I can't wait. And I was like, well, you're going to have to because I'm going to delete it all right now. And she called me, she's like, please don't do that. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, but once I finished writing it, it became the task of finding an agent and figuring out this whole different industry that I had no knowledge of whatsoever. Yeah. Publishing world yeah. is I mean, as, a, as arcane as I guess the legal world is, the publishing world seems also very much run by connections and, you know, yep. who you know. But I was very lucky because I had taken a writing class at um, Catapult in New York and uh, the teacher, um, she's an editor at HuffPo and she just, she loved my book, even though I had like three chapters done. Um, and she said, you know, I want to help you in however way I can. So she was the only person I, know, I knew really had any connections so I emailed her and very humbly and it was years after because it took me a long time to finish it was probably two two years after um I said I'm done I don't know what to do now and she immediately put me in touch with an agent at ICM Partners um Andriana Yates who's my agent now and she just loved my book it was crazy I you know um I couldn't believe that she liked it. I was like, oh, she's just being polite. Like she's a friend of a friend. Like she's just being really nice. And I kept waiting for her to be like, no, we can't take you. But she worked with me and, and helped me smooth it out a little. So when Andriana saw it the first time, uh, it was really my second draft. So I yeah. edited it once and I was like, I don't want to look at this anymore. This thing sucks. And I just want to hear from people who know that it sucks. And then I can give up on it and I'll say I tried and I wrote it for my kids and, and they'll yeah. have it and that'll be great. And that's really as far as I had thought. And she's like, no, this book is amazing. And then she was like, no, it should go to the big five publishers. And I was like, are you crazy? Like, there's something wrong with this woman. Um, <laughs> and she had all of the confidence in the world. And you know, your job as a lawyer is to manage your client's expectations. So I kept waiting yes. for her to manage my expectations. I was like, you know, I, I understand if I'm not gonna get a deal. Like, you can just tell me right now, just tell me. And I, I must've told her this like five times. And she's like, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> it's not going to happen. She had so much faith in my book and I cannot, cannot stress 
the difference that makes. When someone who understands the industry and knows what she's doing tells a first time writer, like there's something good here. Because then you start to be able to like, because I, I, I can't get an objective viewpoint of my book. It's my book and it's my life. And so when she said that, I started being like, okay, maybe. And then she submitted the book in the middle of the pandemic. Um, the day she the day after she submitted it, the George Floyd killing happened. And the world was just madness. It was crazy. And I, I think I was, it was actually maybe a little better that it happened that way because I was, I went out protesting and I was doing things and my mind wasn't so much. Yeah. Yep. Um, but five days after we sent it out, uh, Doubleday reached out and gave us a preempt offer. They loved it so much. They wanted it off the table for the other publishers. And I should tell you, my agent sent it to like 20 some editors. And I was like, why? We're wasting people's time. But she, she had so much faith. <laughs> and uh, I spoke to the editor and we just clicked instantly. She got my vision in which that's really important, right? To have a professional who understands the vision and, and heart behind your writing. Um, and so we, we went for it. And then I got a UK deal probably a week or so after that. It was a series of weeks where just good things kept happening, but then the world was going crazy and I just didn't know how to feel about it because there was so much chaos and heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and and it felt weird to be sharing good news, but some people appreciated that because in the yeah in that, yeah it has some light, um, yeah. And so right now we're working on. Um, I got my first kind of round of edits, which were mostly kind of line edits, and we're really working on just tweaking and finessing. And I gotta say, it's much harder, even harder to, even more hard, to edit when you have a deal. But when you don't, because now I'm like, oh, people are going to be reading this. I have to yes. make sure everything's really perfect. Um, and not just like perfect for me, but perfect for everybody, which is, as you know, is not possible. Um, so that's where we are. Um, and uh, really, really excited to be to to be finalizing the book and, and getting it buttoned down and, and doing the moving on to the next stages, which I'm with, which I'm not familiar at all. So. Um, I, I, I am so thrilled for you because, again, for me, I just love stories where you're waiting, you're waiting. And in the last few days, I've been on a short sabbatical and I've been watching a lot of films. And so I watched Pull Up the other day and just that whole period where he was kind of waiting for somebody to say, yes, your stuff is yes. great. And last night it was Julia and Julia and that whole I thing about yeah. 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 So I'm really excited for you. I think it's a really important story. I think, I, I hope we'll see more from you in terms of a book because that's, that's kind of chapter one, right? There, there's more to come. And I struggle as you do with, so is this why I went to law school? But there's also to your point that you made earlier, you're playing a significant role where you are in redefining what that kind of corporate environment looks like. And I think, you know, we tend to feel guilty about all kinds of things. Could we all really be human rights lawyers? No. Could we all really be civil rights lawyers? No. So I started to make my peace with, oh, yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay to do this. And then do other things like my podcast, right. which allow me to engage in those social issues. So Julie, I, I am so, so grateful that you, were, you came on the show. You shared so much of your time with us. Is there anything at all that you want to say kind of a final 
um, reflections to the audience before you go? Yeah, um, I think our world has just become so divided and we've become so fixated on the ways in which we are different from one another that we don't really stop to appreciate how similar at bottom we all really are. Um, and so I would just implore everyone to keep that in mind going forward and keep their minds and hearts open. And thank you so much for taking time with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. A woman after my own heart. I, I give talks where I, I, I talk about remembering our commonalities. And this does not have to be at the expense of inclusion and diversity. But we have to remember we're coming from the same place. And I think about it in terms of um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Especially yeah. that sense of belonging. We almost all want that. And so if we're able to appreciate that, why can't we get our stuff together, right? So, Julie, thank you so much. And hopefully when the book comes out, I'll hold the spot for you. You can come talk to us about all the wonderful things he's doing and how he's climbing on the New York Times charts and everything. So, <laughs> thank you. It's been a joy. All right. Take care. Join us next week as Eunice Carvajo shares her defining moments. Someone had found what they thought to be a bomb. And so at the time when you were appointed, um, Isabel dos Santos was appointed as well. The period sort of fraught with a lot of political issues and particularly because there were elections at the time as well. Mm -hmm. And so a new president came into, into power. Um, and so it was, at the time, it was, it, was, it was difficult because you sort of dragged into a situation that is not of your own. Uh, your motives are questioned, your ethics are, are, are questioned. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah. it was an opportunity to look inside and to feel very comfortable with who I am. One of the things that I started to, I learned, you know, when, when I said leading other people was always have a effort budget, what I call it. Because there may come a time in your life when you just have to say, Lucy's, I'm out. Sometimes yes. the, you just come to that point where the option that makes the most sense to call your being to exit stage left.